tonight and looking forward to it a lot. I was thinking of what would be important to uh, frame the discussion on the first Monday night of the new year. And uh, it, in keeping with people make New Year's resolutions, what are we going to what, what am I going to do this year? Um, I made certain resolutions for myself. I, I hope you did about whatever you thought about. Uh, actually, I, should, I could start with telling you one of the resolutions I made last year, and it would make a point about what having to do. Uh, I heard somebody joking about this on the radio the other day. So how many people gave up cookies? How many people gave up? Uh, ice cream, how many people. Uh, I would like to be able to say I took a resolution to give up uh, greed, hatred, and delusion. Uh, because those are, in fact, the three, uh, the names of what the Buddha called the three poisons in the mind. Greed, hatred, and delusion are what catches, captures the mind in habits that it often doesn't see until it gets into trouble. And does things that cause suffering for one's own self and for other people. So I could tell you one of my resolutions that I made last year. I was going to tell it halfway into this talk, but I decided I'd give you an example of one, one that I actually did, uh, which made a difference. I made a decision about a year ago having to do with uh, wise speech. If you think about the Eightfold Path of wise understanding, wise, wise aspiration, uh, wise action, wise speech, wise livelihood, wise effort, wise mindfulness, and wise concentration, the Eightfold Path of the Buddha. Wise speech has its own category. Wise action, you say, well, speech is an action. Why isn't wise speech part of wise action? I think that speech is so potent that it gets its own category because you can do so much, uh, make so much difficulty for yourself and other people with what you say or don't say or how you say it or, and a, a lot this week particularly, I've been thinking about the way what my mind says to myself about me and how <laughs> potent that can be, which I mentioned earlier about we can be demoralizing to ourselves or we can say you're doing great, sweetheart, keep on. Uh, last year I discovered how frequently in speaking, not only just in teaching, but in the general course of, of, of teaching, how often, at least because I listen to myself, how often I use the word should. Um, ah, I should have called Jack yesterday to find out what he was planning, or I, uh, I should have called my aunt. I told her that I would call, and I meant to call, and then I forgot. And I realized that every time I say should, first of all, I, I, what I really mean is I wish I had. Not, and if I make it should, then it was something, an imperative that needed to get done, and I didn't do it, so it's kind of admitting to myself, whoops, messed up. And I thought it was bad for my mind to be telling myself all the time, I should have done this and I should have done that. What I really mean, and what is much sweeter for my mind to hear, is I wish I had done that. And I wish I had done that. Because when we come along and we talk about what is it that actually causes um, uh, suffering, the extra suffering in the mind, we have pain in life just because there's pain in life, but then 
we take that pain and whip it up into uh, uh, extra self, extra pain through the habits of the mind. And the habit of should makes the <coughs> the pain of, of of feeling I've done a wrong thing. So if I really want to reduce the suffering in my mind, then I cannot should myself so much. Really what I mean is I wish I had. I wish I'd called my Aunt Miriam. I wish I'd remembered to put out the recycling today because it happens today. I'll do it better in the future. It's kinder, it's softer. So I, it sounds like a small thing, but since it's the beginning of the year, that I'll give you one hint just to start out this year. I decided I would give up the word should. I would never say should again. And I listened to myself, and then I decided not... So in the middle of a sentence, if I said I should have or he should have, it doesn't matter if he should have, he didn't. What I really mean is I wish he had, and now that I say it that way, I don't make him out to be a bad person or a derelict person in some way. It just keeps my mind a sweeter neighborhood with less bad people in it, really. <laughs> Isn't that true? So uh, what I want to tell you is I thought about it two years ago, and I kind of did it. I really took the resolve last year, and I'm good at it. So I really just want to give that to you as an idea. I sweetened up my mind from it, which I really think is what we're all trying to do. We all are fundamentally when we're... I, I think that this whole practice is based on the idea that when we're in our right mind, when we're not confused by greed or hatred or delusion or all the habits of mind that, that come from that and are fueled by that, we're really... Uh, companionable. I think human beings are a companionable species. You think about it. I don't know what sheep say to each other or what anybody <laughs> says, what camels say to each other, but when we, we, we get in an elevator, someone else gets in, we say, how are you? I don't know if we even wait around long enough or whatever, but we express something about having noticed that that person got in. And they say, I think we're companionable. I think we take care of each other if we're not confused, if we're not all whipped up and, and preoccupied. And I think the whole of practice is really trying to find those habits of mind that contribute to a relaxed mind that is companionable and available and those habits that uh, contribute to an unrelaxed mind that closes in on itself and forgets there's a world out there. There was a, uh, on the cover of the Shambhala Sun this month, there's a quote that says, it's from uh, a Tibetan teacher, Sangyang Mipam Rinpoche, and it says, if you want to be happy, if you want to be unhappy, think about yourself. If you want to be happy, think about others. Is that a good idea? Well, you know, the Dalai Lama said about that a long time ago. I heard him say, you know, about if you want to be happy, if you want to feel joyful, think about the joy of people in the world. Anytime you see somebody who has joy, somebody wins a figure skating contest, the Giants win the World Series, uh, someone gets an Academy Award and bursts into tears, and they are happy, and you could be happy with them. He said, take every opportunity to be happy in other people's joy, the Dalai Lama said, because there are eight billion other people, 
and the chances of feeling joyful are way better if you think about other people's joy than about your own because it's comparatively few and far between when you think about those odds. So just to keep your eyes open and look at the world and revel in people's wonderfulness. And he didn't say this in the same sentence, but I thought about it when I was putting that down here to talk about today. And I thought if you keep your eyes open and you look around, you not only see other people's wonderfulness and delight in it, but you see other people's pain. And you see how ubiquitous pain is in the world, this kind of pain and that kind of pain and the other kind of pain. And if we can somehow modulate in our minds the wonderfulness of the world and the pain in the world, for me, I, it's, the, it's the essential piece of what allows me to keep my eyes open and realize that there's a lot of pain in the world that I could address myself to. I was really um, uh, impressed by the movie Monk with a Camera. Did you see that movie recently? Monk with a Camera is a contemporary film. It's a documentary. It's playing in the Rafael Theater. It's about uh, Nikki Vreeland. Nikki Vreeland is the grandson of Diana Vreeland, who was a longtime editor, uh, editor-in-chief of Vogue magazine. And the, the movie is great because you see all these archival photos of Vogue magazine and the great uh, covers and Diana Freeland and her daughter. And here's Nikki and grew up in that kind of society and in a considerable amount of affluence and goes to school and at some point decides that he's interested in working on himself and really doing the internal work of heart transformation. And not only becomes a Tibetan Buddhist practitioner, he becomes a monk. And 28 years later, the Dalai Lama appoints him to be the head of the monastery in India, where he lives. And that's where the movie begins and ends. Uh, You go through all, from the beginning, he's already, it's already now, but then it has snapshots and going back in his life, all through his life. And it's, it's, it's very touching to see. And particularly, uh, at the, uh, near the end, he's talking about the practice of the monks in his monastery. And I wondered what he would say was their principal practice. And he says, we practice being contented. Actually, he says it differently. He said, we, pra- we content ourselves. And I really found that lovely, because we don't usually use content as a verb. We say, I feel content, or he seemed content, or I calmed down and then I was content. But we content ourselves means I actively do something to keep my mind balanced. Somebody, uh, I talked about it the other day at the, at a, at the day-long New Year's celebration, and someone uh, way in Montana wrote an email because the, the class was streamed, which I didn't get to see until today because it came in late in the class, where he said, um, isn't it really tricky to say we content ourselves? What about if people became content and look at all the things in the world that we really need to address that are serious 
problems in the world? What about climate change? What about the wars in the world and the inequality of rights and the inequality of uh, material goods and famines and uh, epidemics? What about that? What if we were content we wouldn't do anything? And I, I really think it's important, at least for me, it seems very clear that content is when you can do something, that the content has to do with a mind that's not unnecessarily confused by what isn't important and is able, in its clarity, to see what is important and have the energy to do something about it. I like very much that uh, the we, we are calling the the contemplative practice, and actually not the contemplative practice, the open eyes all day long life practice that we do, uh, has, has become, it's become ordinary to call it mindfulness. But when I began, it was called by the proper name of vipassana meditation. How many people recognize or remember when it was vipassana before it was mindfulness? Vipassana, in its exact translation from the Pali, means seeing clearly. And I like that a lot. You know, if I wipe my glasses and I put them back on, I see more than I before I wipe them. But I think this seeing clearly has to do not only with making it out on a visual level, but really, really seeing what's happening. Really, really seeing the degree of difficulty in the world from unrecognized habits that create suffering, those habits that come from greed and hatred and delusion, that have people imagine that they're different from other people, or imagine that they're separate and that their well-being doesn't depend on everybody else in the world, or imagine that we can go along blithely in the world and not take not take cognizant of the delicate balance of greenery and breathing beings in the world so as to conserve and to do the right environmental and ecological things that need to be done to keep the planet from heating up and to keep the planet verdant enough so that we can all breathe. Even in the things of seeing clearly that... Um, this is the most banal but I'm thinking what example is going to pop into my mind I was in New York a few weeks ago in a, in a really dreadful traffic mess in a taxi cab with taxis cutting each other off here and there and there and here and uh, I said to the driver at some point because it, it looked to me hair raising to be a driver I said, is, is your job stressful? Which seemed to me like a kind of a ridiculous, just passing the time question. I said, is your job stressful? He said, it could be if I let it. <laughs> and then he said, this is what taxi driving is about. I thought that's really brilliant, you know? He said, is my life complicated? Yes, it is. Is yours? Yes. Is that, that's because that's what life is about. Things happen. You know, the, I, I, I used to tell more um, old-time stories, like the story of the monk walking along um, peacefully on a cliff edge, and a tiger comes running. You probably all know. How many people know that story? 
walking. Oh, not so many. Tigers walking. Tigers were. <laughs> monk is walking on a cliff edge, and a tiger gives chase, and he has no choice. He can't outrun the tiger, and he can't really jump off the cliff because it's a long way down to rocks in the bottom of a stream and rushing waters down there. But he notices a thick vine hanging over the cliff. And so he grabs at the vine and slings himself over and is hanging onto the vine off the side of the cliff. And the lion, the tiger is looking over the top of the cliff and growling at him. And he looks down and the water is crashing along. And he's hanging on the, on the vine and he looks up in front of him at the vine and a mouse comes out of a crevice in the side of the cliff and begins to gnaw on the vine. <laughs> and there's a strawberry growing on a little twig out of the, out of the cliff. And the story is that he picks the strawberry and eats it and says, this strawberry is delicious. <laughs> I love that story. I like it better all the time. <laughs> in Korea, in the temples in Korea that have very beautiful, especially big tempera paintings, like really uh, murals on the walls, uh, they love that particular story. Uh, paintings of the great, uh, the stories that are very famous, that's a very usual painting to see. And I, I've loved them always. And then I thought it's been a, it was a long time before I realized that really, really the point of that story is that we are all hanging on a vine that's getting gnawed at. And there's a, a water down below and a tiger up above. And we don't know when our vine is going to get bitten through. I have a whole... Well, here's a real one. I was going to read Billy Collins. Well, I'll do Billy Collins, and I'll tell you Billy Collins is a pick-me-up. So, It is possible to be struck by a meteor or a single-engine plane while reading in a chair at home. Safes do drop from rooftops to flatten the odd pedestrian, mostly within the panels of comics, but still, we know it is possible, as well as a flash of summer lightning, the thermos toppling over, spilling out on the grass. And we know the message can be delivered from within, the heart, no valentine, decides to quit after lunch, the power shut off like a switch, or a tiny dark ship is unmoored into the flow of the body's rivers, the brain a monastery, defenseless on the shore. This is what I think about when I shovel compost into a wheelbarrow and when I fill the long flower boxes, then press into rows the limp roots of red impatience, the instant hand of death always ready to burst forth from the sleeve of his voluminous cloak. Then the soil is full of marvels, bits of leaf like flakes off a fresco, brown-red pine needles, a beetle quick to burrow back under the loam. Then, a wheelbar then the wheelbarrow is a wider blue, the clouds a brighter white, and all I hear is the rasp of the steel edge around the round so against a round stone, 
the small plants singing with lifted faces and the click of the sundial as one hour sweeps into the next. That that the image of the safe falling out of a window, you probably have seen it. It's a cartoon image. You see it in... Usually, I've seen it as a, car, a big, huge office safe is somehow, oddly, fallen out of a window of a high office building. And the one I had on my bulletin board for a long time had a man walking along underneath it jauntily, reading what was what the caption is. So it's clearly his recent report from the doctor, and it says cholesterol normal, blood pressure normal, <laughs> this normal, that normal, and here's the odd safe falling down. You don't know, the mouse is gnawing. Here's a more, more, well, for me, this stopped my heart for a minute. This is from the most recent issue of Poetry Magazine that has uh, English translations of poems in Spanish by uh, young women, young girls who are adolescent girls who are uh, orphans living in a home for orphan girls. Look at Jennifer and Brian kiss at the Church of Sao Paulo. The church looks like a toy. They met in third grade. Her hands sweat like crazy because she's lived in a home for girls without parents and has rarely seen boys. She gets pregnant, and they will now marry. That's how things go here. Yes, she looks like a fat frog. When Jennifer, when Jennifer helps Brian button his pants at the wedding, the button flies toward her eye, and Jennifer loses her eyeball. <laughs> These things happen here. Three weeks later, Jennifer asks for a divorce. She has her son, and they live under a bridge. One day, her son falls into the river. The river is the color of a knife, and the river takes him. I'm telling all of you, if you come here, this could happen to your life. The randomness of things. That's more random than we think, well, that can't happen. I was driving here tonight, and um, on the radio, I was listening to the traffic report, and it said uh, on such and such a highway tonight, uh, there was a fatal crash, but the lane has now been cleared, so traffic is flowing. And I thought, wow, the news is that lane has been cleared, so the traffic is flowing. But somebody's not going home, who left home yesterday. I always imagine that we should have radio station a protocol that when they say that, they have a, a minute or that they say there was a fatal crash on such and such a highway, so it would be good to take this or that detour. And that they say, now we'll have one minute, and please think about the people who were expecting that person or the people who hoped that person would come home, or people who are about to hear about it. We hear things, and I think that one of the things that happens from meditation practice in this form, contemplative practice where we sit quietly, is we have a chance for our minds to settle down a little bit so we can actually relax and 
take things in in a in a um, in a way that transforms us. When I remember that my life hangs on the same, in a sense, uh, caprice or the same. I just don't know. We none of us know what's going to happen today or tomorrow. When I remember that, I'm much kinder, and I spend less time getting involved in stupidities. Stupidities. I was telling a group the other day that two years ago, my husband took very ill when we were in uh, in in France, and he's a man in good health. He is a man in good health now. I'm happy to tell you, he took tremendously ill, and he was he was in a hospital on life support in intensive care for three weeks, during which time it was unclear if he was going to get better or not. And then he got better, and he's quite well. During the time that he was very sick, I thought to myself, he's either going to get well or he won't. But I also thought, if he gets well, I will never again get mad at him at any of these small little... Peculiarities, habits that he has, little annoying habits. Everybody has little annoying habits. I will never again spend any time being annoyed at that. That's a ridiculous waste of time. When you think about life is short, to spend any time thinking about anything other than it's a miracle. It's a miracle that we love each other and it's a miracle that we're still alive. Period. That's the whole story. How could the mind, I'll never again get caught up in any kind of foolishness. And then we came home and he got better. And the mind gets caught in foolishness. <laughs> Doesn't yours? If we remembered that you don't know, you don't know. When I was a child, I was very much um, taken. There's a particular blessing that's part of Judas, Jewish life. When you come up to a big holiday like Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Passover, or you come to your birthday, or you get married, some arrival at a special day, there's a special blessing that you say, and you give thanks for the miracle of having been sustained in life and kept in health and kept alive until this day, to have made it, phew, we made it to this, married, we made it to this, whatever it is, this next new year, we made it to that, and when I was an adolescent, I began to think about the way things are. I began to think that we should probably, all of us, make that same blessing every night. We all come home and we sit down at the table, the same number of people that sat at the table the night before. to say, phew, because it could have been otherwise. Something else could have happened. Do you know Jane Kenyon's poem, Otherwise? This morning I got up. I don't remember it by heart. Again, I got up and I had a fresh peach for breakfast. It could have been otherwise. I did work I loved all morning. It could have been otherwise. And I sat down for lunch after a morning of work with my partner. And then we lay down on the bed together. It could have been otherwise. And in the evening, we had uh, a meal. 
with white tablecloth and silver candlesticks and pictures on the wall. And then in bed, as I thought about the day, I planned another day, just like the day we just had. But I know that someday it will be otherwise. I wish I knew it exactly, but the import is it could always be otherwise, and it's this way. When I visit my friends, many of my friends, well, at, at my age, many of my friends are sick. And in the last several years, several of them have, de- have died. And I've realized when I visited them at home and spent time with them in their final days or weeks, when I leave and I'm driving home from there, that whatever nonsense was in my mind before I got there is out of my mind by that time. It really puts things in a perspective. It's a funny thing how the, it's not, not haha funny, peculiar funny. It's a strange thing the way the mind works, where when it's relaxed, it's so expansive. You can really appreciate the world and really look around at how amazing it is. Look at all these different kinds of people. I, uh, once a year I visit New York City. I was just there earlier this month. Visit New York City. And my friend lives on 100th and Riverside, and I stay with her. And then I walk down Broadway to wherever it is that I'm going to go. And Upper Broadway is the most amazing place in the world. Everyone is there. Everyone is there. First of all, ethnically, it's tremendously diverse. And uh, every kind of store lines the streets. Every kind of age of person is out there in every level of mobility from old people uh, with canes, old people in wheelchairs getting pushed, young children on skateboards whizzing between people, people pushing babies in baby buggies, an inordinate number of twin strollers, really lots of twin strollers on Upper Broadway. And twins are always amazing to look at. Not to speak, every once in a while, triplets, triplet strollers, and that really is amazing to look at. Wow, look at that. And all this stuff to look at, you can look at it, people speaking different languages. You can think, wow, look at life, it's so amazing. And if I'm going to teach somewhere 20 blocks away, I can walk down there and look at all this and be uplifted and excited by it. Or if I'm perhaps worried about what I'm going to teach or maybe it isn't going to go so well, I didn't prepare enough, and I'm preparing my lesson plan in my mind, I can walk all the way down Broadway and not see anybody there because my mind is closed and I've only got what's in it going round, 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 round. And I can miss this. And then suddenly a horn honks or something and it startles me into being awake. And you look around and say, wow, look at this. This is the whole world. And it's so exciting. You look at that again. And I think that all the time we are living between looking at the world and looking at our own story and looking at the world and looking at our own story. So I'll tell you one more story. I had a thousand things I was going to tell you, but I see that there's going to be a movie right away. And the movie is, um, well, partly it's an illustration of what I'm talking about, and partly I think it's an infomercial, because uh, (laughs) that very course that um, you just heard about, that very course of uh, uh, 
11 videos is a course called Mindful Everyday Life is Mindfulness Practice. It was a course that had, it was, these 11 videos were made a year ago. Uh, the idea to begin with was, uh, in response to people saying, how am I going to practice mindfulness in everyday life outside of retreat or outside of classes? Be- and I was particularly excited about it because I particularly want to make the case, wanted to make the case that mindfulness in the classes and on the retreats, which is very much um, equated with uh, meditation and contemplation and slowing down and closing your eyes, is the preparation for mindfulness in the rest of the life with the eyes open and looking around in the world. And they both have the same goal of being able to look around and say, what's true? Life is complicated for everybody, no matter what. It's not just to grow up. I just, I think to myself, uh, somebody once said to me, uh, I'm in transition. Everybody is in transition all the time. <laughs> that the two-year-old that's getting dropped off at, 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 a, uh, uh, at a caretaker for the day is a transition between their mother and somebody new. My granddaughter, when she made the transition to kindergarten from preschool, was worried, I'm not going to know where to put my lunchbox and I won't know where to hang my jacket. So you can worry about that. You can worry about whether or not you can do long division or fractions or or dance or uh, be social or figure out your, your sexuality. What am I? How do I do with that? What do I do with that? How do I make a relationship that's enduring? Do I want to make a family? Do I not want? What kind of a profession do I want to have? I'm a transition to decide from studying to doing this to doing that. Now I figured out that what I'm going to do, I'm going to do this. I'm going to be with this person. I'm going to do this and this. And whoops, now I'm transitioned from a person who used to hike to a person with arthritis in the knees and a person with, uh, who has cataracts and needs to have eye surgery. We are always in transition. Somebody said, I'm getting used to being single. That's how everybody else is getting used to being partnered. That we're always getting used to. And it's complicated for everybody. We look around and we see that it's complicated for everybody. We realize it's not a mistake that it's complicated for us. And actually, we don't feel alone in the world. One of the things that uh, I think about when I go to visit people on intensive care floors and hospitals is usually you're walking to see your person who's either in a semi kind of a ward with very intensive care or somewhere along the way with now they're on semi intensive. But if I look in this room and this room and this room and this room, they've got clumps of people standing around the person in the bed. And I don't know the people standing and I don't know the people in the bed, but I know that they're like I standing with somebody that they care a lot. And by the time I get to my person, I don't feel so alone. I am not the only person in the world who's standing with someone. When my husband was in the hospital for those three weeks in France, I'd come early that you couldn't go all day long. In intensive care, you can only visit from 4 until 7 in the afternoon. And you have to wait outside the whole ward until it's 4 o'clock. So people start to queue up about a quarter to... And uh, you start to real, you start to recognize people day after day, 
and this family comes and stands, and people speak in hushed tones, and nobody speaks out of their family grouping, so because everybody's got their stuff to talk about. And that if a certain family doesn't show up one day, you start to wonder that person could have gotten better or worse. Or if somebody shows up and they look very down, you feel for them and you don't know what's going on. You don't even know who they're visiting. But you know that you could be them tomorrow and they're looking at you as well. And nobody does anything but look at each other. And somehow it's consoling to have a community of people who are waiting realize I'm not alone in the world with this. That's a big deal. If we look around the world and we realize life is complicated for everybody, if we also realize that we make, we make the ordinary complications of life difficult when we struggle with what we can't change. That's the second noble truth. The imperative of the mind, this is what I talked about in the beginning, it was that clue about New Year's resolutions, things should be different is some form of um, uh, what they, unwise thinking. There's a line in the Metta Sutta that says, the pure-hearted one, by not clinging to fixed views, doesn't suffer anymore. We cling to the view that things should be the way they, we want them to, but they're not. They're the way they are. And we're not in charge. And to be able to say that and get it and still love this life. The third noble truth of the Buddha is that peace is possible. Contentment is possible. In this very life, in this very body, in this very mind, it doesn't mean a life without complications. Everybody's got complications. It means being able to say, I am part of the community of human beings with complications. And it's fantastic to be part of that community. My parents were, my grandparents were, here am I, my children are, my grandchildren are. We're all cycling through in this great drama of beings coming and going, and it's amazing. It's astounding that it happens. And that the fourth noble truth is that there's a way to train the mind so that it meets situations with the wisest, most balanced, view, so that through seeing clearly we make wise decisions, we speak wisely, we have wise livelihood. One of my friends here tonight is a hospice nurse. She says, I have wise livelihood. And I think to myself, it's an amazing thing to be able to every day go and visit people and be a participant in remembering that everything that's born passes away sometimes in a timely way, sometimes in an untimely way. You don't know. It's all part of this strange mystery of being alive. And to be able to celebrate the mystery and be glad to be a part of it and be inspired to help other people in the mystery is really, I think, uh, uh, the noble enterprise of becoming a... um, a peaceful, peace-filled, engaged, alive human being. I read somebody today who said um, about somebody, said he was alive till the end of his life, which sounds like of course, you know, but not of course, not of course. Somebody, Maureen Stewart, I think, 
said, um, who died, she was a Zen teacher, she um, presumably said with her dying breath, which Zen teachers are supposed to do, uh, thank you very much, I have no complaints. Uh, and I think that's great. First of all, complaint by its very nature is a ridiculous thing. Why are you complaining? It should be otherwise. It's this way. We already established that earlier. The whole idea. A complaint is not that things are bad. Uh, things are sometimes bad. A complaint is that they shouldn't be. But they are what they are. It's too late. So I th- when I heard that about that, thank you very much, I have no complaints, I thought to myself, maybe that'll be, of course, she used it up, so I can't use that as my thing. But I would not only like to die with no complaints, I'd like to live with no complaints. I think the, the taking out the should is one way to do that. It's this way. My favorite definition of equanimity is, this is what's happening, let's see what happens next, and I'll figure out what to do. That's it. Things happen. The fourth noble truth is really how to train the mind so that it can do that and how to have enough stability and ballast in it, enough concentration in it, enough uh, mindfulness, enough acuity to be able to make out what's happening, enough uh, uh, determination to make wise effort to choose on behalf of wholesome states when uh, there's a possibility, which there are all day long, of choosing wholesome or unwholesome. Okay, I'll take wholesome. It's just training the mind. Just. That's like it's easier than you think. It's it's not so easy and to, to get it. It's not so easy to choose wholesome. But it is a possibility. And that's inspiring to me. I wanted to show you these. We will show these to you. But it's important. I'll tell you these two stories fast so we can see those movies. At some point in my meditation practice history, I was doing a very long retreat and practicing very, very diligently. And I had discovered that I have a fair facility for really keeping a focus. And sometimes when people get very focused and they stay with it, they begin to have unusual energetic feelings in their body. Their body gets filled with energy and they seem to be filled with light and they shake and they tremble and energy flows through their body in all kinds of dramatic ways that they've only read about in arcane books and they think, oh, this couldn't be happening to me. I'm all telling you about myself. I read that stuff in books, and I thought, I hope that never happens to me. That sounds wild. And then when it started to happen, I thought, "Uh uh-oh, it's happening to me. Then I got a little excited about it. Uh Uh-huh, this is happening to me. So I am special, and I don't see it's happening to anybody else. So maybe this means I'm getting enlightened. Whoa. So I'll I'll try harder, and it happened more. Happened so much more that it got to be like a habit of my body and it couldn't turn off, kind of like the sorcerer's apprentice. And some years went by, during which time I had a very out of control, not so out of control, I went to work, I got up, I got my family, but a very out of ordinary nervous system for a few years. And at some point, someone said, why don't you go see Chagdud Rinpoche? He was a wonderful Tibetan 
sage teacher. He's he's in the Bay Area. So I went to see Chagdud. I told him my whole story. I thought he would tell me something uh, special, a mantra I could do or something that would stop it off or tone it down. I also thought he'd be impressed with (laughs) how fabulous my practice was. So I told him this whole thing, and then at the end of it, he said, um, how much compassion practice do you do every day? I said, wow. And I gave him a very book answer. I say, well, uh, we, we assume that if mindfulness leads to insight, leads to wisdom, leads to compassion. He said, no, really, how much compassion practice do you do every day? I said, what do you mean? He said, how much do you go out every day and look around in the street and see how people are suffering? So I thought, whoa, maybe he thinks I'm way too self-preoccupied. But he seemed so kind, I didn't think he <laughs> Some months, maybe a year or two later, I was in Israel. And um, I went with my husband to... Uh, to uh, I had an a, a interview with a, um, a Kabbalah teacher in the old city, a mystic, who through a friend of a friend of a cousin... I got, a, got it arranged so I could phone up, and he said, come and visit. And we went to visit, and a very traditional Rebbe, and, uh, so that uh, it was a very big thing for him to invite us in. And my husband and myself, and of course, I, you know, I know how to behave in those circumstances where you don't shake hands, and he sat at the end of the table with my husband, and I sat at the bottom of the table, and they began a conversation and uh, my husband talked to him about the cousin who had arranged the interview. And at some point, way too soon in that conversation, from my view, uh, my husband said, and my wife here uh, teaches Buddhist meditation. So I wasn't actually in a hurry to tell him that information <laughs> right up front. I mean, I'm not embarrassed about it, but I didn't know how he would take it. You know, he's a and he leaned forward towards me, and he said, Really? I'm so interested in that. Tell me about it. So I said, It's about paying attention. And I said a few other things. And he said, Tell me what was the most difficult time you ever had in your practice. So I explained to him, the best I could, he had limited English, about that I had been practicing very hard to have this concentration, and all these energetic things had happened in, my, in me. And he listened, and he listened, and he said, well, I'm not really a meditation teacher. I think really he is. But he said, I'm not really a meditation teacher, but I think you meditated too long. He said, I think you should have gone out in the street every day and looked around and seen how people were suffering. (laughs) So it's important to tell you both those stories, because I think that practice... It's about coming on retreat and coming to class and having a place at home to sit quietly and close your eyes and calm yourself down. And mostly it's about having a life and behaving in the life in an engaged, awake way.